Hello and welcome to the new series of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. The show is nearly five years old now. However, for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before we start, I'm delighted that the headline sponsor for this series of the podcast and the upcoming Material Matters Fair taking place from the 20th to the 23rd of September at Barge House, Oxide Tower Wharf, is Burt Frank. The premium British lighting brand based in London and Birmingham will mark its 10th anniversary this month at the London Design Festival. With new product launches that celebrate the considered use of exceptional materials, in addition to reimagining some of its most popular designs into innovative new forms. Together, these launches outline an exciting new chapter for the brand that has championed the globally recognised hallmarks of British design, quality, craftsmanship and innovation since its inception. So, my guest today is one of the country's leading textile artists, Alice Kettle. Alice uses embroidery to tell stories and throw the spotlight on contemporary issues, most notably the refugee crisis in her series Thread-Bearing Witness. And she's generally quite hard to avoid at the moment. Currently, she has a solo exhibition on at two sites in the City of London as part of her prize for winning the Brookfield Properties Craft Award, while Threads, Breathing Stories into Materials, an exhibition she co-curated, opened at Bristol's Arnold Feeney in July. On top of all that, she's Professor of Textile Arts at Manchester School of Art. Alice, thank you very, very much for doing this. How the devil are you? Thank you, Grant, for that great introduction. Thank you very much. And I'm <laughs> sorry it's hard to, hard to avoid me at the moment. No, this is a good thing. I think a wholly, wholly good thing. Um, we have a long-standing tradition on this podcast of giving our conversations a little bit of context. So it'd be good to know where you are because we're talking over Zoom and there's a lot of kind of wooden panels, frankly, behind you. That's right. Yes. I'm in my new studio. I moved to Somerset from Hampshire right. in 2019, having lived in Hampshire all my life. So it was a very big move and it just coincided with lockdown. So I'm in a very rural location, but I'm in an eco building and I have a fan- fantastic new studio. Previously, I had a shed in the garden. So I've kind of gone up in the world, but I've gone west, so to speak. Up and west. Yeah. I mean, it'd be good to know if you could maybe describe your studio for us. I mean, are you a tidy worker? Are there threads everywhere? How does it look? Well, because I had this big move, I had threads everywhere, under every (laughs) cupboard and in every drawer, and, and it was very hard to find anything. And moving, I put everything in boxes and labelled everything and sorted everything out. And I was very surprised at how much thread I'd got. <laughs> so now I have these cupboards which are behind me and I kind of know pretty much where everything is. I don't think I'm very tidy, but I've become tidier in the process of being in this new studio because I kind of know more or less where everything is. Yeah, yeah. I think the way I think is... You know, it it follows its own thread, so to speak. I kind of leave things half done and then come back to them. So things sort of stay stay out and then I have a big tidy up later. And the change of studio, has that changed your work? I think it has, yes, because... Mm, In what way? Well, as I say, I'm in a very rural location. I overlook a field and I've got these big skyscapes and I think it's given an openness to the work so that there's a much more kind of a sense of open space in the background of the work. But also I've become very aware of nature, my relationship with nature. Mm. I planted a garden and I overlook a garden, which I'm looking at now, and it's just been a joy. And I suppose it's made me kind of much more reflective. And so not only has the subject matter come into the work, but I think that whole kind of sense of you know, what I'm doing with my work, what I want to do, where I, you know, what it's for kind of thing. So a bit of self-analysis going on, I think, as well. You've opened a huge box, <laughs> Mark Pandora I know. or something now. Yeah. What is your work for? Well. Have you decided or gleaned yet? I think doing the, re- you know, you introduced the, the refugee work. And yes. I think it's very much thinking it can't always be about me. It has to find its sort of place in the world. And, and I think there's something about creativity, which is a humanising force that we have to celebrate. So I think that's fundamental and championing that in all forms I think is even more important in the sort of present day challenges that we have Mm. but I also think it needs to 
be a conversation. And, you know, I always think craft is relational. It has to have a conversation with somebody else. It has to kind of meet and speak to other people or convey something of how you see the world. And I think craft is a very good way to manifest some of those conversations about responsibility, about relationships, about provenance, about the values that we espouse. Mm. I think those have become much more central in terms of how I think and how I work. I suspect we might get into quite a lot of that as we talk <laughs> further. I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm keen to talk about, because you seem in the nicest possible way mm. to be everywhere at the moment. There mm. is a solo show called To Boldly Sew. Did you come up with that title? I didn't, but I rather like the Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, To Boldly Sew. It's in two locations in the city of London, as we said, part of the uh, Brookfield Properties Craft Award that the developer organises with the UK Crafts Council. I think it's also buying three of your pieces and they're, then donate them to the Crafts Council's collection, right? I know, I'm very lucky, I'm very proud, yes. Yeah, it's nice. And you also have this show that you've co-created at the Arnold Feeney. It's entitled Threads, Breathing Story into Materials and includes 21 international artists, a number of whom we've had in this show in the past. So I'm wondering, should we start there? How did the show come about in the first place? I was approached by the Arnolfini, um, the director, Gary Topp, who is a remarkable, you know, is a real kind of champion of material practice. And the lead exhibition curator, Gemma Brace, you know, they asked me to come in on what they were already proposing, which was a textile show, because they felt they needed someone who was immersed in that as in their own practice. So I came in on that original conception and it, grew from there. So it's been about two years in the making and we had to decide what we wanted to do. And I think what was very interesting for me is that it was truly collaborative, that Gemma and I, we were introducing new people to each other, trying to find a commonality and an approach that felt like it could speak to audiences at various levels because the Arnolfini very much has this strong engagement programme that they see as integral to their exhibition programme. So it has to reach people at both ends, if I can talk a bit yeah, yeah. in that. I don't really like speaking about it like that. And we wanted to sort of trace the provenance of where making and materiality, you know, that, that route through where it references place and people and practice. It kind of connects with those stories from the past, making stories and our own personal stories. But it also, you know, it counts for itself in the present day in reference to that. And I think we very much have done that. So they're all contemporary artists, they're all living, and many of them see textiles as their defining practice. Then there are those who've turned to textile within a wider practice. But I think the deciding factor was that textiles in its sort of material form and its process has to articulate what they want to say. Is it the material that's bringing them all together, Alice? Because according to the Arnolfini website, the show explores narratives of movement and exchange, environmental concerns, sustainability, labour, trade, migration, post-colonial narratives, identity, gender, politics, community building and placemaking. There's quite a bit going I on. I know, there. there is quite a bit. And we kind of thought, I, you know, when you read it like that, it does sound very broad sweep. So I think it's owning the fact that these are diverse. These stories are diverse. There isn't one single strand. It's about storytelling. And of course, the range of stories are very broad. So we have those who are talking about migration. You know, we've got Yinka Shonibar. So in his, in the textile fabric itself, he's using the textiles to address stories of migration. So yes, in a way we could have focused it and had a much more narrow subject. But I think in terms of storytelling, we wanted to have those who were emphatically using textiles to tell their own stories in these various ways. So we did have lots of conversations about how do we pull this together more tightly? Mm. But actually, the richness, I think, is in the variety. And again, saying this is about the breadth. But what they're all saying is they're rooting the narrative in the provenance and the kind of use of textiles, and they're using it to retell the story in the present, if I can articulate it like that. I loved your, your use of the word emphatically using textiles. Does that mean... There are people who don't use textiles emphatically. Oh. I mean, I, I'm, gonna, I'm <laughs> oh, wondering if I should name names, but I mean, I know that Grace and Perry's done tapestries that have received some criticism from people within the textile world. In a way, that's a very big discussion because, of course, there are those who've dedicated their lives to textiles. And I think I was, you know, I'm championing those who see textiles as their emphatic form. As their medium. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And to understand the kind of deep 
articulation of how textiles carries with it its associative meanings and both in its kind of practice and its materiality and I suppose to some extent you could say there are those who perhaps have less understanding of that but they're using textiles and maybe that's where my voice has come into this where I'm working with a curator who has a slightly different lens but I do think we had lots of discussions about who should be included and who should be excluded. And we genuinely feel that all of those who are included use textiles as a way to, you know, they couldn't have done, told their story in any other way. They have a deep, yeah, deep understanding sure. of what the resonance of that material is. And one of the questions that has come up is how textiles in a way has got a prominence, you know, it's kind of emerged into, you know, much more kind of powerfully acknowledged medium in, in the artistic field, I suppose. I would contest that because I would say it's always been there. There are those of us who've always worked in this field. So I think it's a debate we could... Spend all podcast on. We could yeah. spend all podcast on, yeah. <laughs> I get the sense I've been told yeah. to move along here, Grant. <laughs> uh, well, no, I'm happy to carry on talking about it. Yeah, so I think the selection is I am coming in as a collaborator in this curated yeah. exhibition and yeah. it has a broad sweep. But there are also things going on outside the walls of the Arno Feeding, aren't there? Yes. There's a chance for visitors to look into Bristol's history with textile. Absolutely. And that's very much acknowledging that you can't dissociate the practice of textiles with its history, with its sense of place. But again, looking at it through the lens of the contemporary moment, so saying that we can signpost and acknowledge all of these histories. So we have a memory map. We have locations that you can access and visit and there are exhibitions in the museum and other places which have that history, you know, the record of the history there. And then we've got, um, we've got audio um, voices as well within that memory map. So we've got little QR codes. And then we've got kind of contemporary, you know, where there is the previous cotton factory, what, you know, now that's occupied with um, contemporary practitioners who are working in so Bristol weavers, etc. So we're trying to sort of show that there is this link, you know, it's linked through yeah, to the yeah. present. And there's also an accompanying exhibition uh, showcasing the work of refugee women who came to the Arnold Feeney's Women's Craft Club and the Bristol-based charity Bridges for Communities Stitching Together. So why are textiles, why is embroidery important for these people? How does it bring them together? I think it's a way that it's transcends language you know you don't need mm. it's, it's a sort of non-textual way of of kind of coming together as a community and it's a non-threatening way of working so they have a very established program in the craft club of working with refugees so we linked up with bridges to communities through a stitch because we knew that threads was coming up and put a lot more focus on the stitching not that they haven't previously done that but with a view to it being included in the exhibition that has been a really positive contribution. And the Saturday, the Friday club, the craft club continues. And Celia Pym, for example, is exhibiting in the exhibition and she's working with the craft club every Friday through August as well. So I think it's showing how there are these crossovers, that it's not just about exhibiting, it's about this kind of engaged practice that goes out into communities and creates connections and um, allows us to tell our stories with each other beyond the walls of the art gallery. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you have a piece that's based around the refugee crisis at Arnold Feeney entitled Ground. And there's another from the same series called Sea at the Brookfield sites back in London. They both have come from a collection called Threadbearing Witness. And it's a collection of these are pieces that seem to have become incredibly important to your practice. Why take refugee, the refugee crisis as a subject matter for your work? Well, those two pieces are part of a triptych, which um, were the sort of centerpieces of Threadbearing Witness, which have many other works within it. It was, it's kind of a big project and it continues. Because mm. it started in 2017. It started in right? 2017, yes. So there's Grand Sea and Sky, which were the sort of core pieces, which were kind of universal sites that we all inhabit as part of these, you know, a shared world. There were various other projects and activities that connected with that. And really, it was coming back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is saying, actually, why am I doing this? What's this for? And I have three daughters, and one of them in particular has been very um, active, and she still works in migration. And as a 
23-year-old, she gave off a very good job to go to Dunkirk and set up a charity. And so was very immersed in the whole refugee support. And it was a period when people displacement proliferated. You know, of course, it's always gone on. Mm. And I felt, how could I not acknowledge and, and play a part in this? And of course, textiles and my work is the way that I feel I can articulate some way of showing, demonstrating that I care. Or, and I think perhaps naively, I set out to feel that I had to use my work to serve in some way. And just working out how to do that is an ongoing process. And I have to say that I feel totally committed that I've met extraordinary people through the project. And it's complex. It's very challenging. And it's very you know, it's, it's not easy to say this is somebody else's story and where is my place in that? What exactly am I doing and how, how can I do it in a meaningful, positive way? And that endures, you know, that continues to be a question. Texas is a very good medium because it's always migrated. You know, if we think about historic trade routes, we all have some form of textile that has been produced in Southeast Asia or has traveled across, you know, through these routes of production and trade. So it kind of is a very good metaphor for saying actually movement is part of the textiles condition. And so within that, I have used refugees to inform the work. And so there are various other things that go on. So I do various online sewing classes, I support workshops and materials for refugees. And then I've become very close to various individuals who I continue to support in various different ways um, and who've just blossomed in terms of how they work and the, and kind of how they've furthered their life. And so I'm always humbled by them. Yeah. And in two of those pieces of the tip trick you talked about, refugees contributed work to the pieces yes, themselves. Yes. So originally when the project was conceived, it had to be, um, you know, the practicalities of having the Whitworth Art Gallery showing the work, having a date in place, having to have a kind of sense of what the exhibition would be and having to secure funding. So I had to propose what the work would be. And then I spent many months gaining the trust and understanding how I could work with groups and individuals. So the first one, C, was made by myself as a response to the media, to seeing all of the votes and feeling that I wanted to acknowledge this, but kind of invest it with a sense of human dignity. And then the second one, Ground, which is at the Arnold Feeney, is all images that have been contributed by refugees from when I've been in refugee camps or working with groups or working with individuals. So it's very varied. And I still get images coming through on my phone, you know, and we're talking about quite a while later. And so what I wanted to do there was just produce a testimony, you know, use whatever they chose to give me as them saying, you know, that's their story. So I reproduced as authentically as I could with using my digital sewing machine, the drawing that they contributed. Obviously, there is an editorial aspect to that because I have to reproduce what was possible to stitch and what came in at what stage. But on the whole, I think I feel very much it is their piece and those who are able to see it regard it as their work. And for me, that is the biggest tribute. And were you surprised by what they contributed? Absolutely, yes. Well, I mean, what kind of things were they sending to you? Well, that's the fascinating thing. And I think it kind of affirms this sense that making and craft is about something productive. And it's a kind of positive attribute because they sent me flowers and hearts and, you know, things, signs of hope, symbols of hope. Whereas I thought I would get, you know, tragic, you know, or quite difficult and challenging imagery. But it just, for me, it showed that there's something that is perhaps about textiles that has, you know, these kind of recognisable iconography that you kind of reproduce, but also that the human spirit has this incredible capacity for hope and envisaging a future. And I think that was kind of where I saw this piece as being as well. It's the future that they wanted to be in rather than looking backwards at the future that they had left. But of course, it has something of their cultural identity in that place of origin. 
And that there is a humanising element to this work, isn't there? I mean, because people tend to lump refugees as, together as a as a group. They're very individuals with individual stories and and everything else. Was that something you were keen to draw out? Absolutely, because obviously I've been, you know, I had to do lots of training and safeguarding, and my daughter is, you know, very immersed in refugee narratives and work. It's very easy to think of them as a generic group, but they're not. Every story is powerful and individual. It very much needed to reflect them as individuals and how, you know, they're a single voice actually becomes a collective voice and there's something very powerful and important in that. And I suppose I wanted to show that, you know, there is this dignity in the individual and collectively we are sort of part of this kind of world that is this messy shared world but there's a kind of sense of honor in that and in that sort of time of passage where you've lost everything and your future is so uncertain that you can kind of secure it you know secure that moment within the work and I think there's something about stitching which is solid you know it stitches something into and secures it into the ground so it's very rich in color and it's got lots of gold and metallic threads because there's something really beautiful and enhancing about the spirit of the human condition and those people I met. And obviously I couldn't speak to them because our languages are different, but there was something that drew us together because making is a way that you can actually speak to each other. So much of the time, you know, I would just set up and start stitching and then that would gradually enhance a conversation and promote shared working. So a real privilege. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if some of the your attitudes or, or the way that you worked has changed since you started, because it seems to me when you're talking now, you talk a lot about the hope of, of the situation, these people's aspirations. Your first piece, C, that you talked about, which has um, splashes of colour and there's a lot of blue, but it's quite traumatic. I mean, there are a lot of bodies floating in that ocean, which you don't realise until you get quite close because it's a big piece. I think the whole refugee challenge is... So challenging and difficult. And I think the world has, you know, evolved into a a very, you know, even more difficult place. And I think um, migration is even more of a difficult issue than it was then, which is hard to believe. But I do feel you have to have hope because otherwise you become hopeless. And I think there's a making, you know, there's writing about how it's a positive action, you know, making more, you're making better, you're making good, you can do stuff. And actually, it's empowering, because you actually, I think the sort of physical capacity for making, you know, all of those kind of way you you engage with materials, and actually, you can realise something which is accomplished and just physical in its aspect. So I think there's something that is hopeful just in the process of craft. I hope you're enjoying the episode. This is just to remind you that the Material Matters Fair is nearly here. The event, which is headline sponsored by the British lighting company Burt Frank, runs from the 20th to the 23rd of September at London's Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf. It will be full of brilliant ideas and wonderful exhibitors. Picking out names is invidious, however, here goes. Plank will be showcasing its material that transforms old denim and army clothing into veneer, multiplex board and flex sheet materials. Jan Newman repurposes discarded lenses from the eyewear industry to create a new material for his products, while Hydro will be displaying the untapped potential of recycled aluminium. Meanwhile, the likes of Biomatter, Silk Lab, Mycelium Lab and Material Magic will be illustrating how design can work with nature. If craft is your thing, then look out for work by the likes of Anna Bridgewater, also known as Abalon, Mixed Metals, Gareth Neal, Bill Amberg and The Wicker Story. And there are features from the likes of our designer of the year, Pearson Lloyd. Danish designer Tanya Kirst will have her extraordinary textiles made from hemp and citrus peel in our entrance hall. The Wood Awards will be unveiling its shortlist, while Insight Publishing has put together The Works Place, a space that showcases the latest and most innovative thinking in sustainable office design, circularity and innovation. And finally, Isola, the Milan-based design platform, will host a new exhibition on the third floor of Barge House. Nothing Happens If Nothing Happens will feature emerging designers using regenerative resources and repurposing waste materials. And did I mention there's a talks programme featuring Michael Young, the always lively Negroni Talks and a bunch of other brilliant stuff? Thought not. It's terribly exciting. Oh, and it's also free for trade. You just need to register by going to our website, materialmatters.design. There's also an Eventbrite link in the blurb that comes with this episode. 
See you there. One of the things that struck me when I went to see the solo exhibition in the city, the two two parts, it becomes clear that your work isn't small, Alice. No. These are big works. You work at a scale. Scale is important to you, and I wonder why. Oh, well, I trained as a painter. I went and mm. did, you know, we're talking quite a long time ago in the late 70s, 80s, and when it was just the end of abstract expressionism. That was a period where we were just encouraged to do very sort of physical, large, gestural paintings. That has very much informed how I work in my work now. I think I like to be in the work so that you become within it and so that you see it's the human scale. You know, you meet it or you're within the work. And I think there's something about um, the challenge of that and drawing embroidery on challenging preconceptions about you know, the kind of intricacy and the minuteness of embroidery. But also I just think I feel that I like the kind of investment of time so that I can draw something out of myself, that I can allow my mind to sort of immerse myself totally in this kind of process. And that's where my mind starts freewheeling. And I think there's something about labour and repetition that is really important and that idea that in it you define yourself and you work through things. Sometimes I think... It'd be much easier to work small, but I think I kind of want to lose myself in them. You know, when an actor, they take on a personality or they take on another person and they hide behind the mask. I think there's something about that where you actually, you don't feel very confident about life in general, or you feel kind of challenged or at odds with it. And so you can kind of sort it out in your work and be in the work and tell the story of your life or how you want life to be in the work. And if I do that on a human scale, I can be within it. I'm quite interested in this notion of immersion because they're often figures. Your work is quite figurative. They're usually people in your work. Is that you? Are they based on you, those people? I think they originally were. As I say, when I did abstract expressionism, clearly that was not referencing anything from the real world. And I started to work figuratively, which was very at odds with that time. And it was very difficult because nobody else was doing that at that period. I lost my mother and I felt I needed to kind of find a way of resolving that. And so I started doing figures and really that's carried on ever since. And I think it's partly trying to struggle with my own psyche or kind of understand something of my own self then the narrative sort of comes stronger and stronger through the work. So they're not always myself, and they're not representing myself. They're just a sense of being, a sense of being in a space, being in a certain thought process, you know, referencing something I've read or thought about or someone I've met. So very often they're portraits of other people. I sometimes talk about them as portraits, but they're not portraits per se. They're not kind of representational. They're kind of portraits of a sort of sense of someone. Mm. People often come in groups of three. Now you have three daughters and I believe that you have two sisters. So this is a personal response as well? Yes, that's true. Yes. So I am one of three sisters and I think that's something very symbolic. I like symbolism. And I like these kind of way things regenerate and reproduce. So the idea that I'm one of three sisters and I have three girls, that's quite a sort of powerful symbol. And of course, you can think about the three graces and the three fates. You know, there's a, you think about mythology and storytelling, you know, three is quite a powerful numerical number. And I believe that the girls can change the world, you know, through this thread. That's how I see the world. (laughs) That actually this idea that making and through thread, we can actually encounter all the difficulties of the world and revision them through thinking of the world through thread. That sounds a bit ridiculous, but that's how I see the world. And I think the girls, you know, obviously as a mother and for a lot of time as a single mother, you know, they are the defining creation of my life. So, of course, they appear a lot. They appear a lot, as does mythology, Greek myths, mm. and some folklore. So when did that start to influence your work? Well, I think it's always been there. My father used to read us stories all the time, and my Godfather gave me the Andrew Lang fairy story books. So I was kind of, my childhood was a lot of reading of mythology and fairy stories and folklore. My father was always very busy, but the one time 
that we were together as a family, he would read us stories or tell us stories. So I think that has seeped into the work. And I like the gods and goddesses and this idea that you have destiny and these archetypal themes which recur, this idea that life is, you know, all of those myths, in a sense, have very contemporary resonance that they're about endeavor, they're about challenge, they're about tragedy, they're about comedy. I like those as reference points. So for example, you know, someone like Ariadne with her golden thread, that golden thread was the agential medium. It, it allowed Theseus to exit the labyrinth. So that was the most important the thing. Yes. Mm. So thread and Ariadne, this interconnection with the two, you know, it was a way to be effective. And then there's Penelope, you know, there's a lot of textile in mythology. So <laughs> Penelope, you know, she wove and unwove Laertes' shrouds as an act of faith and endurance. And that's a powerful story. So I have mapped much of my life onto that in a way. And that's been very consoling in some ways, but also it gives you a reference point. You mentioned your father being very busy. What did your parents do? Well, my father was a teacher. And my mother was a teacher too, a geography teacher. My father was a linguist and we lived in a boys' boarding school. So they were always busy. And so as girls, we were in the background and just occupied ourselves. And my mother was very creative. So she always had the sewing machine out, was always making things. So my childhood was pretty much making anything and everything and being in the garden. So, and I do think those things, you know, they're very formative, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. But I was very good at just kind of just doing my own thing. That's a bit curious. Childhood growing up in a boys' boarding school. Mm. I mean, they're quite immersive. I mean, talk about immersive. Those are immersive environments, right? Yes. You know, <laughs> I think it's left me with all kinds of strange hang-ups, probably. It's like living in two worlds because you live in a place and it's not really a home and you're not part of it. So you're both in it, but out of it. So yes, it was a very strange environment. But I think perhaps that's why textiles and making, doing what is purported to be a sort of women's medium in a way was important. It kind of allowed me to explore who I really was out of that context. What were you like at school? Well, I was very shy we never watched television or very little. We watched Blue Peter and Jack and Ori. So I was never very <laughs> up with the sort of popular things that other people, uh, my friends could talk about. So I always felt slightly outside of things. But I had very good friends and I loved art. You know, I did well in all my exams, but I just think I felt very uncomfortable, I think, although I didn't know it at the time. And I think what, when I went to art school, it was a way of resisting what was expected. It was a way of opting out. So what was expected, Alice? I think to do something academic, yes, probably. But then my parents, well, my father supported me wholeheartedly and was very, you know, it was amazing. But my mother had died and that was a trauma, I think, that took, has taken me, well, it took me about 10 years to get over. There was a period of my life where everything went into hold. And I think that's when I started stitching. That's interesting. So stitching is a comfort, a way of, of taking yourself out of your immediate environment? Well... I think it's because some, it was something I could just do and I liked doing and mm. probably to find a connection with my mother if I psychoanalyze myself. And it felt like I could be more powerful and I could rehabilitate myself or feel that I could be at ease with myself by doing that. Mm. So what age were you when your mother uh, passed away? I was 17. She died in a car crash driving me to university, so there was a lot of guilt attached to that, so... It was very difficult. Yeah, it was very difficult. Mm. So you studied fine art initially. Yeah. And then you switched to textiles. You studied fine art at Reading and then went to Goldsmiths to do textiles. Textile art, yes. And I'd never heard of it. I didn't even know you could do right. anything like that. And I remember feeling very nervous about asking my tutor at Reading to write me a reference because applied arts were not something that you would do. But the moment I got there, I was interviewed by Audrey Walker and taken under the wing of Christine Risley and Margaret Hall. I just started sewing from that day and I kind of knew, I just knew I'd found what I wanted to do and I just couldn't stop. 
But I think because I'd done all the painting first, I came to it yeah. just knowing what I wanted to do in terms of imagery. And it just was working out how to do that. Was there a moment where you thought to yourself, can you remember? I mean, obviously this is tied in with your mother's death, I guess, but where you thought, I'm not a fine artist, I, I want to stitch, I want to be a, an applied artist in that sense. I don't think I ever made the distinction. I just thought, I just right. want to use this medium in the way I want to use it. And I think that's been a kind of enduring issue that I kind of feel I never really fit in either world. If you can distinguish between them, I think they cross over. I do think there's something really important about understanding about skill of having mm. deep material knowledge and an understanding of material process. And I've made it my business to acquire that, but also to kind of adapt and challenge that. So because I use a machine all the time, the mechanical process imposes itself upon you. So because I'd been painting, oh, everything I do is about finding ways to make this have energy and dynamic force and expression. It's kind of as simple as that, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm interested when you made the step and you went to Goldsmiths, did you have much to show them? Presumably you've been painting for the past three years. Well, I had a year in between and I joined a City and Guilds class. I can't quite remember what it was. I think it was fashion or something. And then I read Constance Howard's book of embroidery and I worked my way through it. And I had maybe two very small embroideries to show them. But it was mainly painting. So to be honest, I was very surprised that they took me on, but they were very positive about my application. I remember my interview to this day, actually. I can remember the room. I can remember what I was wearing. I can remember <laughs> how they, the Audrey came in late, <laughs> but they were very encouraging and they offered me a place there and then. So I knew I'd found where I wanted to be. And who were your influences at that point? Well, that's a good question. Well, I'm trying to think. Well, I think when I moved into textiles, I thought, actually, there's something about pattern that I want to kind of explore. So I, things were very geometric and pattern-based, which I hadn't mm. really done before. I remember looking at Victor Passmore, Ivan Hitchens. You know, they are painters, but um, yeah. I think gradually, you know, I acquired a wider range of reference points and understanding I remember looking at Annie Albers, actually, at that point, looking at kind mm. of geometry. Obviously, it's a very different kind of work. And Magdalena Abakanovich, I was looking at her a lot, which is right. so it's really interesting to see her, the prominence, you know, amazing exhibition. Yeah. Yeah, they've both been in Tate Modern in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Women, you know, amazing work. My goodness. Mm. And the scale, you know, big scale work as well. And deep knowledge about materials. I've been making, as I say, at home. So I felt a great affinity with this, you know, really kind of drilling down into how I can kind of test this material and this way of working and explore its potential and its possibilities. And of course, suddenly light becomes a factor and the fact that the machine has two threads so that you're working through between the fabrics. So you're playing with two lines of thread and they can be very different types of threads that so one can reflect colour and one can absorb it. And they have this constant relationship with each other. And it's about how you play with that relationship and the speed of the line, which creates this, this dialogue between them. And you can't mix colour, you can only place them together. So mm. you have you know, surprises all the time in terms of how that, that relationship is realised and how you can open the pictorial space by kind of using directional stitching, this sort of constant line by changing the direction and entering sort of depth of the work. Um, so it was opening up amazing dimensions about tension of line, movement of line, two lines, different thicknesses of line which talk to each other. So really, I'm still exploring that. Mm. I mean, in terms of process, because, you, you know, you, you, throughout this you've been alluding to how you make your pieces one of the things that's really intriguing is that you, you kind of work through the through the back of the piece. Mm. So you don't really see the piece emerge. No. Well, if you imagine a sewing machine, it's got an arm, a sort of hole where you put the fabric and then the needle. 
So you have a little darning foot which has a needle. It's like being able to draw by moving a piece of paper with a fixed pen. So it's it's effectively like that. And I play with the tensions between top and bottom thread. And I won't go into all of the lock stitch machine technology, but it's basically <laughs> about the kind of relationship about that tension. So if I want to increase the size of the thread, the only way I can do that is by winding it onto the bobbin at the bottom because it won't fit through the needle. Right. When I was painting, they used to say, you know, choose the appropriate tool, choose the right brush, you know, think about the kind of power of the mark. And if you want something minute, use a tiny brush, you know, don't just take any old brush. And I always think I have to echo that advice constantly. So if I want something that has more emphasis and I use a thicker line, a thicker thread, it might be a shiny thread, and then I'll whip out a matte thread on top to vary the colour, but also create a kind of float sense of sort of floating, sort of shimmering shadow on it. But it means that if I want to use a thick thread, I have to work in reverse. And so a lot of the drawing and the figurative stuff is all done in that way. So and if it's a big piece, it's sort of bunched up under this small arm of the sewing machine. So I can only really see what's in front of me the, the bit that you're working on at that time and in reverse and also i can't really see what's on the other side so i have wonderful surprises and horrifying mistakes so a lot of it is very unpredictable <laughs> and so some of it is a bit odd well it's very odd and sometimes i struggle with it to get it right because i just can't see what i'm doing but i've got very good at holding information in my head and hoping that i can realize that on the piece and do you draw first or is it purely improvised when you're at work? If I do draw, it ends up being completely changed because there's tension in the thread which right. moves the fabric around and also because I can't actually see what's going on. There's so much change that takes place and mm. unexpected things that I have to be very responsive. I can draw to some extent and then it goes off and changes and if it gets really bad, I just cut a piece out and stitch a patch on and sew over it again. So a lot of them you'll see have patches in. And the trouble is if they come home from anywhere, I tend to go back into them and cut them up and stitch them again so they can evolve. <laughs> yeah, so I sometimes feel it's a real battle to get something and to know what it's going to look like in the end, especially on the scale, because I used to work in a very, very tiny shed, so I could never see what I'd done until it went out onto exhibition. Mm. So it's, it feels very risky and quite scary a lot of the time, but it's kind of how, you know, you know, you must find this, that people get drawn to a very particular way of working, and you sort of think, well, why? You know, and I think this is what this podcast is about in lots of ways, isn't it? Well, I don't know, you tell me, yeah. I'm <laughs> <laughs> still trying to fathom that. Five years in. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating, though? Yeah. To no. think that we get drawn to a very particular material and a way of working. I mean, this notion of risk is quite interesting. You seem to enjoy that risk in your work. Well, I think I'm not very good at kind of processes, you know, stage processes where you work through one thing after another. A lot of it is just allowing things to evolve and grow. So, for example, when I do a commission, clearly that's very different because I have to have everything mapped out and then I have to make what I've <laughs> agreed to do. And um, if I'm working for my, on my own account, I like to just see what's happening and allow it to grow. That can be a very traumatic process. I'm not saying it's a good process all the time, but it just suits me. So actually bringing back the question about how am I, am I tidy? I think I'm tidy within a context, but I have to allow things to just kind of take their own course. I'm not very tidy. <laughs> Has technology changed the way that you work? Absolutely. I mean, you're interested in digital technology, right? Well, yes. Um, so I mentioned about doing the thread-bearing witness piece where I wanted to be very close to the drawings of the refugees so that I could reproduce them with their handprint, with every kind of nuance of design. And so, yes, I have a 12-needle digital embroidery machine. And what that means is that I can do a drawing, I can scan it in, I can then prepare the stitches, put the stitches into it. And I have a design that I can reproduce, which I can't do in an, with anything else that I do. It's everything else I do. It gets rid of the risk. It gets rid of the risk to some extent. 
but it's coming back to that idea that I don't want it to be look mechanized, that it has to be, I have to constantly kind of subvert it and change it and evolve it. So I use it as a part of the palette, you know, part of the vocabulary of stitch within other things. And it's a really important and useful part because it's different. It has a very different tone. It has a different texture. It has a different surface quality. But I wouldn't ever do it on its own. So I work in combination. And that idea of repetition, I think, is really, for me, it's like this idea that the symbol repeats, the symbol recurs, and you can use that in a really interesting way. And I think I use that in terms of the figures, that often a figure recurs, the same figure reappears, and I might not mean it to. And I sometimes think those are perhaps people I or myself or parts of myself that are kind of important that I need to address or they're kind of alongside me or something. And that's not conscious. It's just, you know, that, that I think that's something in terms of maybe everyone has it, that you have this way that you, things recur and regenerate, but they can't be stuck in that process. They have to constantly change. So yes, coming back to technology, yes, it's important within what I do. Yeah. And I use print as well. So I've now opened the backgrounds up a lot. So I'm printing and stitching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also teaching is obviously yeah. vital to, to what you do. I mean, how does your work at Manchester, how does that inform your practice? Oh, that, well, that's a very big question. <laughs> um, I went there in 2005 and I was amazed at, you know, I went into the machine embroidery room and the range of different sewing machines was phenomenal. And one of the machines in a separate room was the Shifley machine, which they no longer have because it was a, it's a heritage machine, but a huge machine with 83 needles. When I first got there, I started using all the different machines, you know, testing them out. And it was like this a whole array of new um, versions of stitch that I had never come across before. And so you see bits of that in various different work. And, um, but also being part of an environment where there's lots of, different activities in terms of crafts and arts practice. So I think um, one of the things that I've done a lot of is collaborate with other makers in the design school. So I launched the pairings project with colleagues, Alex McCurlin, who is a, a ceramicist, where we partnered with another maker and we just interrogated each other's practices by working together in a very unformed way. So we just saw what came out of that process and actually that has proved to be very rich in terms of kind of reflecting back on your own practice but opening up up avenues of um you know cross-disciplinary work um and rich conversations so out of that we did I've done, we've done various exhibitions and written um we wrote collaborations through craft um which was um one of the publications that I've done with bloomsbury and then also we've done various publications about um, embroidery, kind of securing that knowledge, you know, so it's not lost. And, and working as a staff team to to record um, ways of working, um, because we're very aware that these things evolve, knowledges change, and so having that bank of knowledge um, represented. Uh, and the range of knowledge that is in Manchester represented has been very important. So that's something I'm proud of. Um, but I just feel I'm just so lucky to be with such dynamic colleagues and amazing students. Was it inevitable you'd end up back in a teaching environment, I wonder? Was it a calling? Maybe. Maybe. I, you know, I work mainly with, my job is mainly working with staff. Mm, okay. So supporting projects and staff research I work with PhD students um, so I don't have I'm not part of the kind of teaching team in the undergraduates but I do see them a lot and the MA students but I'm I'm in a slightly odd role you know in terms of you know supporting you know the, these extraordinary staff very gifted and um, knowledgeable staff in allowing them to have well I don't I'm I don't have the capacity to give them time, but opportunities to promote and present their work, um, which of course influences their teaching. Mm. So I'm, I lead the craft and design research group, which is staff. We have amazing people, you know, across all disciplines, glass, hard materials, metal, wood, ceramics, and then all the different textile techniques and graphics and illustration. I hope I haven't left anything out. 
they're very special. I have a friendship group. I have a tribe I belong to. Yeah. But it's not easy. You know, I think education at the moment is a very demanding place to be. But I do feel it has given me so much. And I'm, I love Manchester and I love the School of Art and my colleagues. Mm. Is it coincidence you ended up in Manchester, historically a major textile centre? Well, they'd always had this very progressive, um, well, at that stage it was called embroidery undergraduate course. Now it's part of the textile in practice. So they're all, all the textile courses are, are together. So they'd always had this history and legacy of, you know, really innovative conceptual textiles, everything from conceptual to very design-based textiles and in, in embroidery. So they invited me to go apply for a job and I thought it was going to be temporary and it's ended up being 2005. So quite a long time. Quite a long time. For temporary yes. gigs. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I love Manchester. It's this, you know, the rawness and the, the history of textiles is part of the psyche of the city. Mm. Alice, our time is very nearly up. My final standard question is always plans for the future. What can we expect? I mean, I'm also interested as to whether this solo show, because sometimes these can be like a, a full stop or a opening of a new chapter for an artist. Do you feel that way about this show? Does it indicate that your your work might go in a different direction in the future? Oh, <laughs> well, I, I've got some big projects coming up. Um, I'm not quite sure if I'm able to talk about them yet. <laughs> I won't tell anybody. It's fine. <laughs> I don't, you know, I think I always, I can't do other than I do. So I, my work is very much sort of within its, is I plough my own furrow, mm. but it does change and shift. I think I'd like to do more drawing and painting. I'd like to come back to that more. And I'm doing some smaller works, actually. Ooh, so that's quite good. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Which I find quite difficult, but I think it's very good for me. Just reflecting on the next stage. I'm a grandma now, so you never know. That might influence the work. Um, We've not got any set plans and we don't need any. I think that's the important thing. Well, I have got some set plans. It's just I'm not sure about them. But actually, (laughs) I have thought about something. I want to do big narrative chronicle works. That's what I dream about at night, you know, recording my version of the present moment, you know, as a narrative piece. Okay. All right. Well, that is something to look forward to. Alice, thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you, Grant. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. To find out more about Alice, go to alicekettle.co.uk. My thanks go to the series and fair headline sponsor, the brilliant lighting specialist, Bert Frank. You can find out more about them at bertfrank.co.uk. And you can see its products at the Material Matters Fair, which runs from the 20th to 23rd of September at Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf. It's free for trade, but it's vital that you register before you arrive. For more information on that, to find the other podcasts that I've done, and to sign up to our newsletter, go to materialmatters.design. As ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive an invite to the private view of the Material Matters Fair, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern then any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message, the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. 